Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Awesome. I like it. My name is Paul Abdallah. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Stafford Baptist. It is a joy to worship, to, uh, to gather to worship our God. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our series that we began last week entitled Letters to the Church, where we'll be considering overviews, those 40,000 foot views of eight of uh, the Apostle Paul's letters. So this week, we'll be considering the letter to the Ephesians. So I'd encourage you to open uh, your Bibles there to the uh, letter of Paul to the Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can use one of those black pew Bibles there in the pew in front of you and open to page 976. And you'll want to keep your Bibles open. Hopefully we'll be in them much. Who am I? That's the question that we want to ask this morning. Who am I? It's a question that, that everyone has asked, from the greatest philosophers like Socrates and Plato, to movies and, and movie stars, to your neighbor down the street, or the person sitting in your very seat. But as we seek to answer this question, our exploration and answer can often be unsatisfying. It's just three simple words, who am I? Six letters. Yet it is a question that can absolutely rock us to our core. And I think it's because our view of identity has been distorted by sin. If you've ever been to a state fair or a carnival, you've probably seen those funhouse mirrors. You know those mirrors that, that contort our body, distort our body. We can appear thin or tall, fat or short or countless other variations. And at a carnival, right, that's fun to see and to laugh at. But when it comes to looking at ourselves in the metaphorical mirror, so to speak, we don't want it to be distorted. But the world gives us many options for our identity. One author labels these options as performance and pedigree and passions. Our identity can be performance-based. We, we are what we do. Maybe this is your job or your hobbies, but your identity becomes defined by what you do. Our identity is pedigree-based. It could be we are our history. We're, we're, what, who we are is based on our family history, our social background, our social status. Or identity can be passion-based. And particularly in our culture, we deal with you are your sexuality, your gender, your sexual preferences, your sexual desires define most fundamentally who you are. I wonder what it is that comes to your mind when you hear the question, who am I? You know, when we get the question of identity wrong, everything else in our life is affected. For example, if our identity is performance-based, when we fail in our job or we lose our job or can no longer do it, we're crushed into despair. So the way we answer the question, who am I, is vital. And so the Apostle Paul is writing in his letter to Ephesus and, and the churches around that area to help those believers understand their identity, their life. And our identity isn't tied to our performance or our pedigree or our passions our identity is tied to a person, Jesus Christ. It's tied to his work on the cross and the new life that he brings in the new community he creates. And that's what we hope to see this morning from Ephesians. So before we go any further, let's stop and ask the Lord for his help. Father, you are a good God who does good. So Lord, we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119 that you would teach us your statutes. 
teach us your word. Lord, may your spirit, which inspired these words, now illuminate them for our understanding, that our eyes may be enlightened to see, uh, to know these great promises and to live in light of them. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, our big idea, our one-sentence summary of Ephesians, six chapters in one sentence. Here we go. In Christ, God graciously makes us new and calls us to earnestly walk in that newness. In Christ, God graciously makes us new and calls us to earnestly walk in that newness. As we're united to Christ by faith, God in his abundant grace makes us new. He gives us a new personal identity. In Christ, we're not just given a new personal identity, though. We're given a new corporate identity. And as we are made new, we're to walk in that newness. We're to walk in the unity that comes through our union with Christ. So in Christ, God graciously makes us new and calls us to earnestly walk in that newness. Ephesians begins with a greeting. Paul writes in in Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The author is the apostle Paul. He's an apostle by God's will, we read. It's written likely while he was imprisoned in Rome. The recipients are the saints in Ephesus and and all who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's likely that this letter was intended to be passed around to churches around Ephesus, which could be why our letter doesn't maybe address particular situation like we saw in Galatians. Just to give you a little bit of information about Ephesus, this this city was a a significant part of the apostles' third missionary journey. It was the second largest city in the empire for a time, and it was a port to many other cities in Asia. We see in Acts 19 that Paul spent about three years there. And during that time, we read in Acts 19.10 that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The gospel spread to all people regardless of background or status or location. Well, generally, Ephesians is understood to have two major sections. Really, it's probably the easiest book to outline that will cover this Uh, these eight weeks. It's split right down the middle. The first section is the indicative. It's the truth of what God has done. And the second section is the imperative, the call to live in light of what God has done. So for our purposes this morning, we'll think about it this way. In Ephesians 1 through 3, our new identity. God's gracious actions make us new. Our new identity. And then in Ephesians 4 through 6, we'll see our new responsibility earnestly walk in the unity God gives. So new identity and new responsibility. Let's first consider our new identity. In these first three chapters, we'll see God's grace in three actions that he takes. And these three actions are foundational to understanding who we are. If we want to look clearly at ourselves in that so-called metaphorical mirror, we must first look to what God has done. So as we move into verses 3 through 14, unlike Galatians, where Paul moves quickly from greeting into confrontation, in Ephesians, Paul moves into a long section of giving God praise. And this will reflect, I think, the tone of the whole letter. As one pastor said it this way, if the letter to the Galatians is like a bomb, 
The letter to the Ephesians is like a jewel. It extraordinarily refracts the grace of God. The first refraction of God's grace that we see is in his action to bless his people. God blesses here in the first chapter of Ephesians. So looking at verses 3 through 14 in Greek, you'd see that this blessing is one long run-on sentence. That is, it's one cohesive thought in the mind of the apostle. That thought being that God is the source of all blessings and that he has chosen to set his blessings on, on his people so that his glory might be displayed. We see a taste of this in verses 3 through 10. Hear what Paul writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is what God has done. He's extended his grace to his people, the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, perfectly united as one God planned from eternity past to bless God's people in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He's done this as he's chosen them. That is, he set his love upon them as adopted children before the foundation of the world. He's extended his grace as he redeems them from sin and forgives us our sin through the blood of Jesus. He's extended his grace as he unites all things to himself in heaven and on earth. And he's extended his grace as he gives us an imperishable and unshaken inheritance. Note, these blessings are not a right that we deserve, but a grace that is bestowed upon us. This is not something we have earned, right? We saw that in Deuteronomy 7. Right? Those, the Jews were, were no special people. They were smallest. Well, the same goes for us. This is, this is not a right that we deserve. It's not this blessing, this choosing has not come based on any merit or goodness in ourselves. It's based on God's goodness. It's bestowed upon us through our union with Christ. Which we'll think about more in just a little bit. So it's God's action through Christ for or according to his purpose, according to his purpose. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God in his graciousness has chosen to bless his people and this has been his plan all along. Not only that, God is orchestrating his will. Nothing can, can keep his will from being accomplished. This is one of five times we see in, in verse 11, one of five times in the first 14 verses that the Apostle Paul emphasizes God blessing according to his will. Every detail of your life, brothers and sisters, has been orchestrated by God. Think about your own salvation. How have you seen God working 
Even small details according to God's purposes. Not one thing outside of his grasp or control. So God blesses his people. Not because he has to, but because he has set his will to. Because he has willed to set his eternal love and lavish grace on his people. And he has done this for the reason, for the purpose of displaying his glory. Three times in verses 1 through 14, we see to what end God is working by blessing us in Christ. To the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 6. It's verse uh, 14. And verse 13. Or 12, excuse me. Three times God blesses us not solely for our own good, but for his own glory. Every spiritual blessing is initiated and accomplished through God's work to the praise of his glorious grace. And so the Apostle Paul is praising God for his blessings, but then moves to pray for God's people. And just for those keeping count... These next eight verses are another long sentence in the original Greek. So just two sentences here in the first 23 verses from Paul. And having just reflected on God's greatness as as he sees the sovereign purpose of blessing sinners to the praise of God's glory, Paul moves to pray to this God. Our prayer lives are directly tied to our understanding of who God is. If you believe God is this great and sovereign God as pictured in verses 3 through 14, you will pray to him. Paul prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know the blessings that come to them in Christ. So he's laid out these blessings and now he's praying that they would understand these blessings so that they can join in giving God praise. The apostle spends most of his time praying that the church would know God's immeasurable power There's no power greater than God's, no authority higher than Christ. And so Paul prays the Ephesians would see that clearly. Well, friends, if we're to see ourselves clearly, we must first see God's power and authority clearly. We must see that everything we have as as believers is not of our own doing, but is of the doing of God, His own work. God has chosen to bless his people from before time. He has blessed them in Christ with every spiritual blessing and has done this for his glorious praise. Well, as good as it is to stay in that first chapter of Ephesians, we'll we'll keep moving along into chapter 2. And as we see God's gracious action in initiating and accomplishing every spiritual blessing, the question we should stop and ask is, why do we need God to do this? Why do we need God to act instead of our own acting? Well, that's answered for us in verses 1 through 3. And here we're going to see God revives. This is the second action of God's grace. God revives. Let's see in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read of our position before God's action. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul states our position before God's gracious action, and that is pretty hopeless. Dead in our trespasses and our sins. Not physically dead, Right? We're, we're all living and have been living spiritually dead. 
That is, our spiritual condition is hopeless, unable to revive ourselves. You know, sometimes our position without Jesus, apart from God's work, is pictured as us drowning in the ocean. And we need the life raft given to us. But I don't actually think that's what Paul says. Paul says you're not just drowning in the ocean. You've sunken all the way to the bottom of the ocean. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. We're not even able to swim over and pull ourselves up onto the life raft. We're buried at the bottom of the ocean. Apart from God, we have no hope, no life, no breath. Spiritually speaking, we are dead. But Paul doesn't stop there. In fact, this section of verses 1 through 10, if you're keeping track, is now the third sentence, run-on sentence of the letter so far. It's one cohesive thought. So let's read, starting in chapter 2, verse 4. But God... Dead in our trespasses, buried at the bottom of the ocean, no hope until those two words, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Does Paul say, God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. God does this work, not us. So that we will not and cannot boast. God does this work because he is rich in mercy. Because as we sung this morning, his mercy is more. The description here is so gloriously wonderful. Those who were dead in their sins, no hope of revival, are now made alive with Christ and made to reign with him. To know the immeasurable riches of his grace. Seated In the heavenly places, God revives. Friends, you and I cannot make ourselves alive. But the good news of the gospel is that God can. He is able to make you alive. His power is unlike any other. And how does he do this? He does it through our union with Jesus. This union with Jesus is seen there in verse 5 made us alive together with Christ. Union with Christ is a way of summarizing our connectedness to Christ as the way in which we receive all the blessings of God. So it is through our union with Christ that we come to know all uh, all and every blessing of God. One of the benefits of that union is this new life that we see here in chapter 2. But we've actually seen more than that. If you go back to chapter 1, just read it this afternoon and see how many times Paul says in him, in Christ, in the beloved, again and again and again, every blessing coming through this union, through this connection, this connectedness with Jesus Christ, this intimate union. 
What we come to see in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is that this union comes as we believe in Jesus, as we put our faith in Christ. He becomes ours and we become his. That which belongs to us, the wrath of God being poured out on Christ on the cross. Him as our substitute in our place. And that which belonged to Jesus, his righteousness, now attributed to us. And his resurrection from the dead shows that this new life is guaranteed to us through faith in Christ. Through our union with him, we will be made new as he was made new and rose from the dead. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you've never thought of your position like this, you've never thought of yourself as needing God to make you spiritually alive, I'd love to talk with you more about that new life that comes through our union with Jesus through faith after the service. But hear the call of Paul. It is by faith, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Find someone after the service who could talk to about this salvation, this revival. Well, friends, as we know of God's grace through faith, as we are revived from those dead in our trespasses and sins and made alive with Christ, we are made new, created for new works. Verse 10 says, each of us as individuals is given new personal identities. And so we get an answer to our question, right? Who am I? In Christ, I am chosen. In Christ, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing. In Christ, I am made new. But there's another question we should ask. Not just the question, who am I? We actually should ask the question, who are we? One author puts it this way. When we come to Christ in a saving way, we don't come merely as individuals with our privatized relationship with God. We are brought into a new community. More than that, a new family. See, friends, God's gracious actions don't just give us a new I. They give us a new we. This is what we see in the, the second half of Ephesians 2 and in through chapter 3, God unites. The third gracious action of God, His uniting. You see, at, at the heart of Paul's message of God's gracious action is His action to unite Jews and Gentiles into one people, His church. Our new life, our new identity is not just a personal identity. It is a new corporate identity. By corporate identity, what I mean is that those who we would most closely associate ourselves with. Oftentimes, we tend to associate ourselves with those who are like us, who think like us, who look like us, who agree with us. Conservatives with conservatives, Hispanics with Hispanics, parents with other parents, singles with other singles. And whatever that group is for us, they become our corporate identity. But in Christ... God has worked something new, something that is different and unique. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Who's the he? It is Jesus. Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. One thing we know about Jews and Gentiles, if you remember, 
We talked about at the beginning of, of our sermon that Paul, when he preached, that both Jews and Greeks were believing the gospel. But one thing we know about those Jews and Gentiles is that they're, they're ferocious enemies. They're hostile towards one another. Jews didn't spend time with Gentiles and vice versa. But God's actions of grace to unite his people can overcome the greatest of divides. Those who were once separated by ethnicity, nationality, social status, political party, or gender have been brought together. And no, it's not just in close proximity, but into one person. Two people are made into one person. The two groups become into the one dwelling place for God in the church. This is unfathomable unity. It's not based on anything but the precious blood of Jesus. And so this kind of unity can only be found here, where people who have come under the blood of Jesus and been redeemed from their sins through the blood of Jesus. This is what the church is, the dwelling place of God that that marks out of a special, unique unity. You might say our tribe is no longer primarily maskers and non-maskers or vaccinated and unvaccinated. Our tribe is now all those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to say in chapter 3 that this wasn't clearly seen before. Right? The Jews and Gentiles for a long time throughout all the history of, God, of, of the Jews as God's people had been separated But Paul and the other apostles have been given the opportunity to proclaim this truth because God is revealing this wonderful mystery. As we see in verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This wonderful mystery is what we've already seen in chapter 2, that God is now uniting Jew and Gentile. And why has God done this? Why has God united them? Why is God revealing this mystery now? Well, that's what we see in verse 8 through 10. Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why has God united us? God has united Jews and Gentiles to display his manifold wisdom to the cosmos. Angels and demons looking at the church, looking at this unique unity of God's people and seeing and giving glory to God. What do we see in chapter 1? God has done all of this to the praise of his glorious grace. Always been God's plan, but now realized in Christ Jesus. And so with this great task of having to display the manifold wisdom to the universe. Paul prays for the people. You see that in verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3. I wish we could could read it and spend some time in it. It's probably a a treasured and oft-used prayer. Paul prays that the people of God will will know more of the love of Christ and that God in His power can do more than we can ask or think or imagine. The task of displaying the wisdom of God is overwhelming to the church and we need God's help. It is the action of God that enables the church to display the wisdom of God through our unity. Well, friends, brothers, sisters, I wonder if have you experienced this kind of unity? Can you think of someone in this church who is not like you in any way? Different interests, 
different social background, different ethnicity, different political party? How do you relate to them? Is the peace of Christ marking that relationship? Do you regard them from merely an earthly point of view? Or do you view them through this new lens of this new identity that has come by God's gracious action? So far, we've seen just the facts. These wonderful, glorious truths. God's people are made new in Christ, both personally and corporately, united into one new people. This unity comes from God. Only He can do it. But what are we to do? Well, we're given a new responsibility to earnestly walk in this new identity, to walk in this new unity. And so this morning, we'll see six ways to summarize how we live out our new identity as the people of God, how we live out our new life, right? So we've seen God graciously makes us new, and now we're going to see how God calls us to earnestly walk in that newness, this new responsibility. So we'll see the command throughout chapters 4 through 6, the command to walk five times. So just keep your eyes open. The command to walk five times through these three chapters. The first command to walk appears in chapter 4, verse 1. So let's read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Paul writes, I therefore... Note that therefore is, is, the, is the transition because of these truths. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace so having been called by god that is saved christians are to live in a way that reflects this new life this new calling they to live out this new identity walk worthy of this new calling what does this look like Well, generally, it looks like verse 2, walking with humility and gentleness, not making much of ourselves, walking with patience and bearing with one another in love. These are all ways that Christians can be eager, can be quick, can hasten to maintain the unity that God has established. That unity is seen in in verses 4 through 6. We we sung some of this in, in the church's one foundation. So I wonder, friends, if you would say that you're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Are you quick to make less of yourselves and more of others? Is your first response to the sin of others against you gentleness or harshness? How quickly do you find yourself becoming impatient with others in this church? Are you slow to bear with people? Paul calls us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, to walk in this unity. Because this unity has been created across ethnic and social and cultural borders, our unity does not become uniformity. No, we walk in unity even in the midst of diversity. Verses 7 through 10, we'll see Paul talk about how God has given grace to each believer that has borne out a diversity of gifts to his church. Psalm 68, Paul uses to to show Christ as the divine victor who now graciously gives gifts to his people. Brothers and sisters, you've each been given unique gifts, gifts that, that I don't have. So do you seek to use your gifts to build up the body, to walk in unity? Do you seek to enable others in this church to, to use the different gifts that God gives? I think Paul is is speaking both to to spiritual gifts, but I think also, as we see in verses 11 through 16, he's speaking to to 
the gifts being the leaders. Leaders given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the leaders are given to equip the saints and the saints are to each individually work to build one another up. That's what we see in, in verses 11 through 16. Paul's desire is to see the body working in harmony together, building one another up. He says in verse 15, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You and I, brothers and sisters, are, are given unique and diverse gifts. We are unique and diverse parts of this body. Some of us are hands. Some of us are noses. Some of us are feet or ears, so to speak. But this diversity is not to keep us from unity. It is to enable our unity together. We wouldn't want to be a body of, of all noses. That body wouldn't work well. And so like our human bodies work best when, when all the diverse parts are working together, so too the body of Christ works best in unity when we have the full diversity of gifts from God's grace, using them to build one another up. This is what it looks like to walk in unity, to walk worthy of our calling. So that's the first command, walk in unity. The second command we see in verse 17 And this is a negative command. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the fertility of their minds. It's a negative command. We're we're not to walk as the Gentiles do. So, So how do we put it positively? We're to walk in holiness. Walk in holiness. See, the Christians were being tempted to live in impurity and sensuality and greed. But those are not the things of Christ, Paul says. That's that's not how you've learned Christ. Therefore, they are to walk in the newness of life that God has created. If you skip back down to to chapter 5, verse 1, we read it this way. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You see, the God in whose image we've been made new in, this, this new image that we're given, this new identity that we're given, is in the image of our God. We see in verse 24 of chapter 4, That we're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, in being made new, we are to walk in the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. In being made new, we are to to reflect the one who has made us new. We are to be imitators of our Father. If you've been around children for any length of time, you know that they very quickly begin imitating the things you say and do. I'm often surprised by how quickly my children begin to imitate me. And for me, personally, right, that's not good. Some of you know, right, I wouldn't want to imitate me in every way. Sometimes they pick up my anger or my impatience. But you see, as children of God, we don't have to worry about picking up bad things. As children of God, we we, we are to reflect our Father who is perfectly holy. And so we are to imitate Him in every way. The Apostle Paul describes what this holiness looks like, what this imitation of God looks like in in chapter 25 through 32 as we put on the the new life that is in the image of our Father. And while he doesn't directly tie it to the nature of God, I want to highlight how each of these things are imitations of our Father. So look at verse 25. Our God and Father is truth, so we're to speak in truth and not falsehoods. Our God and Father is, is able to be righteously angry and not sin. 
So we should be wary of allowing our anger to become sin, of giving Satan an opportunity to use our anger for sin. Our God is not lazy, but works to generously give to others. And so we are to do honest work, to be generous. God's word builds up and is uncorrupted. And so our word should build up and be uncorrupted. The Lord is kind and tenderhearted, forgiving us in Christ. So we as his people are to be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving as we've been forgiven. In being made new, we are to reflect the one who has made us new. And friends, if you don't know your father, heavenly father, you can't imitate him in holiness as beloved children. So this week, take time to meditate on the nature and character of God. Meditate on his forgiveness of you and imitate him as beloved children. And as we do that, right, we're, we're going to be building up our unity. We're going to be walking in, in this new identity that God gives. Well, Paul continues. He says, one way we can imitate God is in this third command to walk. To walk in love. Look at verse, chapter 5, verse 2. Paul writes, and walk in love as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the one whose life has been made new ought to be marked by a self-sacrificial love. This is the love that, that is seeking to do others good, even when it comes at a cost to us. We are to walk in sacrificial love because that is how Christ walked. Jesus in John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life. For his friends. Friends, Jesus has loved us in this way, sacrificing his own life on the cross for the good of others, the greatest cost, taking upon himself the judgment of God, laying down his life so that we who were sin may be made righteous. And Paul says, walk in that love. Walk like that. So friends, what are you unwilling to sacrifice for others? What preferences do you have that you're unwilling to put aside for a fellow brother or sister in this church? Are you willing to give up your time or your desires to do another brother or sister good? Does your love reflect the love of Christ? If we're going to walk in unity, if we're going to to walk in the newness that God has created, it, it has to demand that we walk in love. It demands the kind of love that Jesus has loved us with. Well, having called the Christians to unity by walking in love, Paul then warns them to separate themselves from the works of darkness and calls them to walk in the light. Walk in light. So the command to walk doesn't come in this chapter until down to verse 8. So before he gets to there, Paul says, we ought to be united to, to Christ and his people in love, but we don't want to partner that is, unite with those who walk in darkness. So he sees there, verse 3, but sexual, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as it is not proper among the saints. What do we mean by, by darkness? What do we mean by darkness? Well, we mean those works that are not right, true, and good by God's standards. We read in 1 John 1, 5 that God is light and in him is no darkness, that is no error or sin. 
So the work of darkness are those things that are not in line with God's nature and character. We see the list of those. We read just briefly verse 3, but, but throughout 3, 4, 5, and 6, we, we see these war, war, works of darkness, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, crude talking, idolatry. All of these are going to come under the wrath of God. And so God's people who have been rescued from the darkness are not to join in on these works. That's what we read in in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 5. Paul writes, Therefore do not become partners with them. With with who? With these workers of darkness. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It's not that we separate ourselves from, from, those, from these works of darkness and, and those who work them because we're better than those who do those works. No, Paul says, at one time you were darkness. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. But now, in Christ, we've been made new. We are in the light, so we separate ourselves because God has brought us out of the darkness. This is why Paul, I think, has spent so much time in the indicative, in the truths of what God has done for us. Because it helps us to understand why we ought to no longer walk in the dark. It's because we've been brought out of the darkness and into the light through Christ. This means that we are now to unite ourselves with the good works of light. Rather than taking part in the works of darkness, we are to expose the works of darkness. We're to call our our friends and neighbors who are not Christians and living in the darkness, we're to expose that those are works of darkness and call them to come into the light with us. So it's not that we don't spend any time with those who are non-Christians. It's that we don't partner with them, unite ourselves with them, because we've already been united to Jesus. What happens when you turn on a light? The darkness flees. Brothers and sisters, we've been brought into the light. The darkness should flee and we are to unite ourselves with the good works of the light. So friends, this past week, have you been joining in with the works of darkness or exposing them? Have you been walking in the light? So, so far, in in light of our new identity in Christ... The Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, has called us to walk in unity, walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in the light. And now we're commanded to walk again in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Look at those with me. Paul writes, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We are called to walk in wisdom. Here, Paul calls the Ephesians to walk wisely. This this means, among other things, to to make the best use of our opportunities that we are given. See, wisdom is needed because we live in a world that is evil. And the pathway to walking in unity and holiness and love and in the light is not always seen right away. Sin, like fog, sometimes makes it difficult to see the right path. And so we need wisdom, like headlights piercing through the fog, to see the path of living wisely. Living wisely, Paul says, as a Christian starts by understanding the will of the Lord. Wisdom begins with the Lord because he is the all-wise God. Living wisely means not getting drunk, but filling ourselves with the Spirit. Christians should make, all, make use of the opportunities that they have when we sing, using it to address one another, 
to build up the body while we give thanks to the Lord. Paul says wisdom then looks like in verse 21 by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I don't think Paul here intends an, an egalitarian understanding of submitting to one another. Egalitarian understanding of submitting to one another. Yes, we're all equally dead in our trespasses and sins and in Christ. There's no more Jew or Greek or male or female. We are all one in Christ. But God is not intended for the natural order in our relationships to, to be done away with. Instead, he shows how we're to live with wisdom in our homes and in our workplaces as we submit to Christ by submitting to others in these practical ways. That's what we see in, in 522 through 69. Paul displaying how we ought to work out this principle of submitting to one another as a way of living wisely. So he addresses marriages, wives called to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, wives called to respect their husbands. In, verses, uh, in verse 33, and then in verses 25 through 30, husbands are called to love their wives, nourishing and cherishing them as Christ has loved the church, nourishing and cherishing the church. And so the marriage relationship here is, is presented as, as referring to Christ and the church in some wonderful, mysterious way. The marriage relationship points us to the work that Christ has done in calling and saving his bride. So sisters, do you recognize your husband as head of your family and relationship? Husbands, is your leadership of your wife and family marked by love? Are you loving your bride as your very self? Paul then addresses... Not just our marriage relationships, but our our kid and parent relationships. So Paul speaks directly to children. So if you're a child here, listen up. Hear what Paul says in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Paul uses the Ten Commandments, and and he calls children to submit through obedience to their parents. But even that submission is, is, then, uh, then he speaks to fathers. And fathers are not to provoke their children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So kids, are you making the most of your opportunities by obeying your parents? And fathers, parents, are you provoking your children to anger? Paul then moves to address servants and masters in chapter 6, 5 through 9. And here Paul speaks of slaves. He refers not to a, a certain race or ethnicity of people. No, what he, what he means when he talks about bond servants and masters is he's speaking of the practice of indentured servanthood. A good connection in our current world would be employer and employee relationship in most workplaces. And so what, what is Paul saying? Well, God's will for us at work is to obey whomever God has placed over us as a way of rendering service to the Lord and not to man. That's what he says in, in chapter seven or chapter six, verse seven, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So if you struggle with your employer at work, I'd encourage you to, to meditate on six seven and consider how serving the Lord and not man might help that relationship. And for employers or masters, they are to treat those who are under their authority well, because God is their ultimate master and he will judge rightly. So Paul calls us to live wisely by making the the most of our opportunities in life and in the church and in our homes and in our workplaces because of the work that God has done. That brings us to our our sixth and final way. So we're to walk in unity, walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, and then we're to stand 
in strength. Stand in strength. Finally, Christians are called to stand. See, in order to endure walking, we need to first stand in the strength of the Lord. Part of the Christian walk is actually just standing firm in the midst of the schemes of the devil. Four times in these 10 verses, Paul will use the phrase stand. We see an example of this in verse 12 and 13. Paul says, why we are to stand? Well, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Wow. Therefore, Paul says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Those of you who have been Christians for a long time understand the need for ever-growing ability to to stand firm. Paul says that we stand firm by, by putting on the armor. The Christian life is one of battle, one of contest, and so we need to be equipped for this battle by putting on the armor. I'd encourage you to, to look over those and meditate on those this week. See, if we're, if we're going to endure in our Christian walk, then we need not to stand in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. And that's why Paul encourages, with kind of his final encouragement there in verses 18 through 20, them to pray. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Make supplication for all the saints. We are to pray, because we need to stand not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. So friends, are you aware that the Christian life is a battle? Are you equipped for that battle? Don't be caught off guard. Rather, pick up, put on your armor, and stand firm. Well, friends, while our identity is based solely on what God has done, uniting us to Christ and to his people, God's people are then called to live out that new identity, to walk in that newness by walking in unity and in holiness and in love and in the light and in wisdom and standing in strength. Paul will end his letter by reemphasizing the unity that God has made in verses 23 and 24. He reminds us that the peace that God gives, true shalom, is found through faith and comes from God the Father. He calls then for grace to all people, not one of God's people being left out. Jew and Greek should know the peace and grace of Christ. All those who love and persevere in their love of the Lord Jesus. Why do we need peace and grace? Well, because in Christ, God has graciously made us new and caused us to earnestly walk in that newness as we live in union with his people. Let's pray. Father, we pray glorifying your name for your good purposes. Father, you have worked according to your, the counsel of your will, not according to the will of man. Lord, we thank you that you have united us in your will to, to Jesus. All those who, who have faith in Christ are united to him, are given blessings that are innumerable. Father, we, we thank you that you sustained us through this season And we pray that as as we come out of a season marked by division, that we would work hard to live in light of our new identity as God's people. That we would walk in the newness that you have created. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.